we all know that life isn't guaranteed. We don't come with one of those manufacturer labels um, on our leg that, that says when our expiration date is. We don't know when the end of our life is. And, and uh, some say that, that the idea that you, we don't know the day or the hour is really about Jesus' return, but, but it's about the time uh, where, where all our choices are over and, and we can't choose anymore. And that can happen at our death or at Jesus' return. And, and either way, we don't know the day or the hour. It, there's something important about this moment in our lives. This is the moment to decide. This is the day of salvation, the Bible says, because the next day isn't guaranteed, which should make us um, thoughtful and aware. And it reminds me of the story of two boys. These are two boys who made a decision. And the first boy, he's like, um, he's the bad boy. He, he's flaunting his toys around town, you know, with his big truck and his, his uh, big muffler and his uh, lift kit. And, you know, he's got the toys and he's playing. And his life is about dumping his money and his time into his toys. He, he uh, you know, drinks a little bit, maybe does a little bit of drugs now and again, hangs out with the boys, um, you know, cat calls the girls. Uh, he, he's, he's that kind of a guy that you don't want your daughter hanging around too much. Um, he, he's, he's not really a good moral influence. He talks bad. He, um, he, he's the kind of guy that wouldn't be... Um, at all put off by the idea of breaking into a place that he shouldn't be in, maybe stealing something here and there. Um, he's the guy that's going to climb up on the water tower if we had one in Bonners Ferry. And, um, you know, he's going he's gonna to do stuff that he just shouldn't do. That's the first boy. The second boy, he's the good kid, and he does everything right. He, he's uh, careful with his money. Uh, he goes to church. He's um, on his way to, to getting a college degree and, uh, you know, and, and a good life path. Uh, he's he's uh, involved in ministry, and um, he's careful with his words. He's the kind of guy that you'd really like your daughter to be set up with, you know? Um, he's just a good guy. But in the background... And, and the first guy, it's, it's obvious he's living his authentic, raw, real self. This is who he is. Uh, but the second guy, there's something going on that you and I wouldn't be able to see. In his heart, things aren't the same as it seems to look like in his life. And that's where the story begins. But we have to go back a little bit in order to, to really get the, the, the meaning and what the application is for, for us. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter 21. This is a story that Jesus told. So I might have made a little bit of, of modern application, but Matthew 21. And uh, the story begins with Jesus coming to a place just outside of Jerusalem where the Mount of Olives was. And he comes there with his disciples and there's kind of crowds, some crowds gathering and he sends two of his disciples away and he says, go get this donkey. And he, there's this miraculous experience that he describes will happen. And so they get the donkey and bring it back. And Jesus sits on the donkey and begins to come down the hill from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And that's a, a whole story in itself, but people are throwing uh, their coats down and they're throwing palm branches and he's walking or, or trotting into town with these shouts, and look in verse 11, and this is what they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This is, 
This is some of the best praise that you can see in the Bible. It's the kind of thing that happened when they were bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant into the, uh, where the temple had just been built in Solomon's day, or in David's day, rather. Um, it's the kind of praise that you see when God is present. And that's completely appropriate. But it confuses the people in Jerusalem. And they, they're like, who is this person? And, and they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the, the experience that kind of is the backdrop. He walks right into the temple after he gets into town. And what does he do? But he, he throws out the money changers and all the people that are, are selling the turtle doves and the, and the, the sheep and whatnot. He, he throws them out. And in their, their place, these um, lame and blind and the children come running around and, and you, you can imagine this, this whole scene catches the, the attention of the priests. They're very interested in what's going on. And uh, they're already wary of Jesus. They're concerned about what this guy is doing. Uh, but um, now he's really got their bad side. He's not, he's not made them happy at all. You already probably know there's something wrong with the scene in the temple. Uh, the fact that Jesus throws them out would suggest that this isn't a, a healthy environment. But let's just, for a moment, imagine what that was like. So you have a, a, the temple currency, and the people, when they came in, they, they would have to, to purchase an animal. By this time, you, you can't bring your own animal into the temple. You have to buy uh, a, a pre-selected, a kosher animal from the, the temple priests or from the, the, the merchants there in the temple. But you can't buy it with regular money. So you bring your regular money in, and you exchange it for the temple money. And then you use the temple money to buy the, the, the animal. Um, Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian at the time, he talks about what this was like and he describes um, the, the experience. A poor person, if they couldn't afford a lamb, they didn't have a lamb and they couldn't afford one, they were supposed to bring two turtle doves. Well, by the time of Jesus, the turtle doves were so expensive that a poor person couldn't possibly bring them to the temple. And, uh, and it was kind of a required sacrifice. Um, one guy, uh, he's um, a well-known, I forget his name, but he's a well-known uh, leader, not Gamaliel, but it starts with a G. Anyway, he, um, he was seeing this rise in prices of the turtle doves. And so the Bible says that a woman, when she's had birth, she, she should bring an offering to God of, of these turtle doves. But, um, you know, if a woman has five children, that's five times she has to buy these turtle doves. And at the inflated prices, well, um, she can't afford it. And so in order to, to fix the problem, he said, well, you don't have to do what the Bible says. Um, just uh, if you have five kids, one set of turtle doves is fine for all five trying to, to, to work things out, um, he was doing his best, but the system was broken. In fact, uh, the high priest An Ananus, um, he's, uh, this is Josephus writing, he says, the high priest Ananus, after he had been relieved from his office, to some degree was respected and feared by the citizens, but in, in a bad way, for he loved to hoard money. He became good friends with Albinus and of the, two, of the newly installed high priest. He did so by offering them bribes. He also had wicked servants who associated with the most vilest sort of characters. And they went to the thrashing floors and took the tithes that belonged to the priests by force and beat anyone who did not give those tithes to them so that the other high priests 
that followed him, as well as his servants, acted likewise, without uh, anyone being able to stop them, so that some of the priests, those who were old and were being supported with those ties, died for lack of food. It was a bad system. It was broken. And so Jesus comes in and he sees the, um, the, the priests skimming the, the profits that were being made at these merchants and he throws them out. And the, the result isn't that people are afraid of Jesus. Maybe the priests are, but the people love him. They see that he's fixing a problem and they come and they throng around him and the children sing his praises and uh, in Matthew twenty one thirteen, it says, Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the children, after this experience, are singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And that phrase, son of David, that means the Messiah, Hosanna to the Messiah. Now, somehow, Jesus made it out of there alive, and that night he spent the night in Bethany, probably with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And the next morning, apparently Martha wasn't on her best behavior because he left hungry, and he's on his way into the, the, the Jerusalem area again, and he sees a fig tree, and he stops to get some figs, but there's no figs there. And so, the Bible says that he curses the fig tree. In verse 18, he says, may you never bear fruit again. Now, these are, are two significant things that we have to keep in mind when we read the story of the two boys that he's about to tell. The first being casting out the money changers and the merchants in the temple, and the second being the cursing of this fruitless tree. Keep those two ideas in mind. And uh, he, he entered the temple in verse 23, and it says, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And, he, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? What do you think they're asking? What, what's the question that's really going on in these priests' mind? I mean, remember what he's just done in the temple. You know what they're asking? They're asking for him to tell them something that, he can, that they can hang him with, right? They want him to say, oh, I'm the Messiah, and I do these, all these things by the power of God. And then they can say, blasphemer, and they can kill him. But Jesus knew that even though the time would come very soon, this was not the moment. And instead of saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, Jesus asked them a question. And he, he said, uh, by what authority... Did John do his works? Well, they knew that the people really liked John, and they thought he was a prophet. And so if they said that he just did the things that he did by the power, you know, his own, uh, on his own initiative, the people would rise up and uh, cause problems for them. They, they didn't want a mob. And uh, so that was not a good idea. But if they said from heaven, they knew that Jesus was going to say, then why didn't you believe? And so they just said, um, um, we don't know. And so Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do the things that I do. Um, but there, there's something about this experience. Jesus, he cares about these people, a, a group of people that were planning his death already, trying to figure out how they could kill him. And, and yet he, he cares about their heart. He wants to get through to them in some way. And so he steps into some instruction. He could have just left it at that. I'm not going to tell you and moved on. But he, he's like, let me tell you a story. 
And in, in, um, in verse 28, he begins, uh, what do you think, he asks? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, uh, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And of course, they responded, the first. Uh, These two boys, the first is outwardly rebellious. No, I'm not going to go. You don't talk to your dad like that, especially in a Jewish culture. I mean, this is the kind of thing, a culture where you you disrespect your parents and your uncles and your brothers beat you up, (laughs) right? This is is not a place where you say, no, dad, I'm not going to do that. And, And yet, this is a kid that says no. So he's outwardly rebellious. And Jesus doesn't say anything good about his rebellion. Um, But he turns around. And what's that called? In Christian circles, we call that repentance. He said, no, I won't. But then he did it. He repented and he turned around and he did what his dad asked. Uh, Just a curiosity question. Um, How do we show that we love somebody, especially somebody that has authority like a parent? How do we show them love? What was that? Obedience. When we follow them, when we do what they ask us to do, then it shows that that we love them. Like this morning, my wife, I didn't get permission for this. Hopefully she'll be okay. (laughs) My wife said, uh, I I need some uh, hangers for, and and some nice um, hot pads, and I want them to go right here. Now, if I love her, will I ignore that? Or will I say, okay, honey, and then go find them? You see, when you love somebody, you, you want to do the things that they ask of you. You want to follow them. And in this case, you have a kid who is openly rebellious, but repents and in love obeys his father. And then you've got this other son, this other son that does not. And before we go on to him, think about the experience in the, the, the temple. Jesus is hanging out with these lame and blind, but he also describes them as prostitutes and drunkards in, a little bit later in this story. And he says that, that um, the people believed in John, and so those prostitutes and those drunkards are going to enter the kingdom before you, talking to the priests. Because the issue that the priests have is like the second son. They say, sure, I'll do your will, God. I'll follow. But then what does their life look like? They do all the religious ceremonies. They do all the outward things that would say that they're a follower of God. But their hearts are completely selfish and greedy and and filled with evil. And so when they should be surrendering their lives to the God who created them, they're seeking to end his life. That, that's the, the story of the two boys. That's the, the, the scenario that we face. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is our heart? Is our heart surrendered to God? Or have we kept it for ourselves, refusing the, the advances of Jesus? In Christ's Object Lessons, um, the chapter 23 called The Lord's Vineyard, um, Ellen White says this, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish rulers did not love God. 
Therefore, they cut themselves away from him and rejected all his overtures for a just settlement. Christ, the beloved of God, came to assert the claims of the owner of the vineyard, but the husbandman treated him with marked contempt. There's something about, we're going to look at the vineyard in a second, but there's something about the hearts of these priests and, and leaders that they don't want Jesus there. They hate him, even though they're supposed to be representing him as, as his people. And so Jesus says in verse 31, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. And and notice what's happening. Jesus is saying, the, the father says, go out and work in the vineyard. And one does, one doesn't, right? And the response Jesus makes is, those people believed, but you did not. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the rest of the verse say? You shall be saved. What Jesus is talking about is salvation. One boy who repents and turns to Jesus and the other who does not, who hardens his heart. Now, Jesus knew that he, they, they were thinking, he's talking about us. And so he, he tried to clarify things just a little bit more. And he, he took one step um, farther into this story. And, and he knew that they were about to, to, to jump in and talk and say something. And I can just imagine that he just cuts them off and says, um, hear another parable. Just right immediately there in verse 33, he keeps going. He doesn't want to let this go because he's trying to grab their hearts. He's trying to prick their conscience so that they can recognize that they are that second son who rejected him or is rejecting, actively rejecting him. And so he says, hear another parable. There was the master of a house and he planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Notice how he uses the word fruit. Keep that in the back of your mind. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and the tenants did the same to them. Beat one, stoned another. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What an interesting story. It's the same story as the the two boys. The two boys are given a responsibility. Go work in my vineyard, he says. And the two boys, one refuses, one, go, one says, I will. And that, that heart response should lead to the very next thing, the caretakers, the people that are, are the, the managers of this master's vineyard. And they're supposed to work in the vineyard. And the result should be fruit. There should be something to give back to the owner of the vineyard. But these particular caretakers, they don't produce a fruit that they're willing to give to their master. And instead, they kill them, the, the servants, and then ultimately his son. And of course, you and I know when we read that, like, it's obvious. Jesus is talking. The servants, they're the prophets, like Isaiah, who gets killed, or Jeremiah, who gets put down in a well, or, um, right? They, these are, are the, the prophets of God that through all the years are supposed to be bringing the hearts of God's people back to him, and yet they refuse. 
and in some cases even kill the prophets on the steps of the temple as though they're doing a righteous deed. And then ultimately kill Jesus, saying it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to go to perdition, right? There, there's, there's this uh, horrible attitude that these caretakers have of the vineyard God has given them. They don't respect God. They don't respect their master. And ultimately, we know that that son is Jesus. Well, what's the fruit? What is the fruit? Of course, the, the, the first and most obvious fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, right? And that makes me think there's three different vineyards that God is inviting his people to work in. The first vineyard would be the vineyard of your own heart, God is inviting us to cultivate and tend to our own spiritual lives. And he gives us a responsibility to be caretakers over our own person. And he says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which suggests that we are not the owners of our body, that God, the creator, owns our bodies, and we are caretakers of that vineyard. And what's the fruit that he expects? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he describes that fruit. He says it's love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, uh, thankfulness, um, long-suffering, patience, right? Um, and, and, uh, and, and self-control is part of that, right? Uh, all of these fruits, did you notice they're the fruits of the Spirit in your life? This is a vineyard that God has given you all the tools to, to bear fruit. He, he doesn't even ask you to work hard at it. He just asks you to tend it, and the fruit will come, and then give back that fruit to him. There's a second vineyard that we could identify, and the fruits may be a tiny bit different. And that second vineyard is the vineyard of his church. He describes in Isaiah several times, his church is a vineyard. And he says that, uh, I tried to bring out fruit from my vineyard, but instead it yielded um, all kinds of, of um, thorny, um, what are they called? Just left my mind. Briars, thank you. Thorny briars. This wasn't good, right? Uh, the result of the vineyard of God's people was bad stuff. And they, they left God. And instead of pursuing God as a group, they pursued false gods. They pursued greed and pride and, and uh, self-sufficiency. Which makes me wonder about the fruit that God is inviting our family to produce. The fruit of discipleship and maturity and growth. When you see a, a, a congregation, um, the congregation should be a growing congregation uh, where all the individuals uh, working together and um, influencing each other and doing life together grow each other up. And that's most especially uh, apparent with our children and new believers, but it's also something we should all be, be growing in, that experience of, of uh, connecting with Christ together and diving into his word together. The fruit it should be a corporate devotion to our God, and it should be expressed most clearly in our, our worship, like today, in our small group experiences, and any interaction that we have with each other, that fruit of love. Jesus says that they will know you're my disciples, my, my children, by the love that you have for one another. And John says that if you don't have love for each other, then you don't even know God. When we are God's children being together, then it's expressed in a maturing 
self-sacrificing, service-filled love for each other. If that's in the church, then that's a fruit that we can give back to the master. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes we can be kind of like those, uh, the, those priests and Pharisees, where this is our, an institution that simply allows us to gain, um, well, position and authority over others and opportunities to do our thing. And, and that's not a fruit we can give back to God. Uh, that's, that's a fruit of, of our pride and something that should be sacrificed on the altar of love. In Hebrews 5.14, Paul said he, he wants solid food. He says solid foods for the mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And then he says, but you're still drinking the milk of the word. He's calling the church to a maturing experience with God and a loving relationship with each other. But there's a third vineyard. The first would be our own, our own lives. The second would be our church family. And the third would be the world. God says that the world is his, is his, um, his field and that he plants it. He even says in this story that he builds up a wall around it. Sometimes I wonder if, if the Israelites had been less concerned about protecting themselves from the world... Would they have been more effective in reaching the world for God? Oh, they were, they were very good about building up walls, right? Walls that said Samaritans are bad and Jews are good, right? Walls that said um, if you do this, then you're bad, and, but, but, if, but you, if you follow all these rules, then, you, then you're good, Right? We've, got, we've got this very careful defense of righteousness in the Jewish example, and the result is that they kill the Son of God. Can we be that way where we build up our own defenses, where our focus in our board meetings or in our church services or in our Sabbath school, oh, let's be careful that no false doctrine ever gets spoken in our, in our congregation. Let's make sure that, that no um, person that's got some bad influence ever gets into our mix. Um, we don't want the devil here, right? We'll even tell stories, and this is legitimate. Um, I, I get this idea. Ellen White describes the idea that in our prayer meetings, people sit in the back and they evil angels fill the pews in the front and distract the people that are in the back from actually getting the message. And, and I get that. I think that's probably true. But, but sometimes, sometimes we make the forms um, the, the, the whole focus. Let's fill up the front pews so the evil angels can't be here. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil doesn't have any problem having access to the church. And I would submit that the problem is greater when we lay down our offensive battle against Satan and, and, and the evil of the world, when we lay down the gospel to take up the, the defense of, right, of righteousness or our version of righteousness, when we are the defenders of the church, it's always a problem. But God says he built the wall around the vineyard right? He's the one that defends it. He's the one that planted it. He's the one that, that even put a wine press in this vineyard, in the story. He's provided every opportunity for producing fruit and for collecting fruit, and he simply asks the caretakers to do the work of gathering the fruit. 
At one point, Jesus said, look at the field. It's white for the harvest. That's already happened. Um, pray for laborers to go out. Pray for caretakers that will bring the fruit in. And, and so the fruit that, that I perceive in the vineyard of the world is the fruit of a life turned towards Christ, like that first son who is in open rebellion, authentically living a, a life of, of uh, selfishness and, and uh, focus on, on uh, worldly things. And and then they see the beauty of Jesus proclaimed through the lips and the lives of God's children. The glory of God is obvious to them. And they say, God loves me. And they turn and they say, I, I need you, God. And that repentance in their lives is a fruit that we can give back to Jesus as we bring them to him. That's the fruit that God invites us to bring from the vineyard of the world. But do we... Do we do that work or are we like the Pharisees and the priests and, and those religious leaders in Jesus' day where we, we block ourselves off from those people that were, are different than us? You know, we don't want to hang out with them because they would have a bad influence on our children, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to go into the world to do the work of harvesting the fruit because we're afraid of the unrighteousness that might rub off on us. Hmm. You know, it's not the outward show of beauty that tells the world who Jesus is. It's the heart transformed by believing in Jesus. That believer who won't keep their mouth shut about what Jesus has done in their hearts. And it's our duty to reveal the beauty and glory of God's character to a dying world. Praising God in, in fullness and in sincerity of heart in, is... It's as much a duty that we have as is a duty to pray. To tell the world about the glory of God. Aunt Ruth knew Jesus. I didn't know her when she was younger, so I couldn't tell you if she was like the, the first son who was in rebellion and turned. But I do know that the, the fruit of the Spirit was obvious in her life. You could see that she was bearing fruit for Jesus in everything that she did. And when she died, she died with hope. She closed her eyes knowing that the next moment in her life would be a new body and uh, that she'd be able to live for eternity. But few who die in Boundary County have that hope. Most who face death in our world face death with fear, uncertain of their future, or worse yet, they die with an overconfident pride, not knowing that their refusal to believe in Jesus will mean that they'll end up bearing the judgment that the fig tree experienced the judgment of, of the, the shriveling fig tree that ended up dying as, uh, for, for the result of their own lack of, of bearing fruit. And what will our experience be? Not just, am I saved? But can we say that we bear fruit for Christ? We have a, a responsibility to our vineyards, our, the vineyard of our life, the vineyard of our church, and the vineyard of our community. Um, and, and it's not that we're the ones doing the work. God has made every provision for it. He simply asked us to join him in the work he's, he's made possible for us to do. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives us all the power we need. Uh, the salvation comes from him. The fruits of the Spirit come from him. The gifts to reach our community come from him. So it's not like we're doing something that's impossible for us to do or in order for us to be saved. That's not the point. But if we fail to follow Jesus 
Do we really love him and do we really believe in him? If our fruit isn't there and available for Jesus to, to, to be praised by, then have we really followed him? And I think that's a, a question that we need to be sincere in asking. Um, he asks for us to faithfully do the work of watering and harvesting and preserving fruit. And over the last year, we've been developing some ideas in the vineyard of our church. Uh, we've been calling it the year of welcome, and, and we've been focusing on this loving relationship and how we communicate that as, an, as a group, how we communicate to others who walk through our doors. We love you, and we, we want you to be around, and Jesus loves you, um, and, and here's, let's grow together. Like, we, we've been working on that, and um, this, uh, this fall, we're going to add a few more pieces to that, and then in January, we're going to start a new year, and it's going to be kind of an added focus a focus on the vineyard of our heart, our own lives. And that's going to be in a a year of uh, preaching through the Bible. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation in one year in a a single sermon series through the whole year long. And I've asked the elders um, to help me with that process. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And that's going to be an internal discipleship and and a growing and a maturing of our own vineyard. But it's also going to be an emphasis on um, what I'm calling the year of discipleship. And we're going to focus on small groups and that discipling, growing, maturing process. Uh, What we we want is for our church to have a culture where loving relationships and maturing in Christ is just part of who we are. That's what our family does. You know, you have those families that you go in and, and you say, oh, this is, this is how that family is, you know, and they, their kids relate a certain way, they uh, eat together or not in a certain way, they, um, they, they talk together in a certain way, the discipline happens in a certain way, and, and you know there's different families, because the one is the parents yelling at their kids, and the kids are d- ignoring their parents, and another, the, the parents um, are relating respectfully with their children, the children are obeying, like, you, you can tell there's a difference, Right? Um, So we're trying to create in our family a culture of loving relationship and of maturing discipleship, something that is just going to happen because that's what we do in this church family. But there's that third vineyard. And so in 2024, we're going to launch another culture building year uh, called the year of evangelism. And our focus, not that we've ever stopped focusing on any one of these vineyards, but our focus for that year is to develop a culture where our church, just because this is how we do things, is constantly and effectively reaching into the community and, and sharing the gospel with that vineyard, bearing fruit for Christ. God has called us to a field of service. He expects us to bear fruit individually and corporately as a church. This is God's design, and it is awesome. When you see the fruit growing in your own life, when you see it growing in the church, when you see it coming from the field of of the world, you can see God at work, and it's exciting. And that's what God has designed us for. Do you want to be excited every day of your experience with God? Bearing fruit is what he's offered. Shall the warnings from God be passed by unheeded? Shall the opportunities for service be unimproved? Shall the world scorn the pride of reason, comfort to human, uh, conformity to human customs and traditions, hold the professed followers of Christ from service to him? Will they reject God's word as the Jewish leaders rejected Christ? The result of Israel's sin is before us. Will the church of today take warning? 
Which son will you be? This is my question. There's nothing good about being that authentically rebellious son. It's the repentance that God invites. And there's nothing good about being that righteous kid that always does the right thing, but in their heart is hardened against Christ. Repentance is the only thing that belief in Jesus and turning towards him in love, that's the only thing that will be good. We're going to do something that Jesus asked us to do. Today is a a communion service day, and uh, the first thing we do is a foot washing ceremony. And the foot washing is that experience 